Say you don't need no diamond ring, and I'll be satisfied. Tell me that you want the kind of things that money just can't buy. I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. Can't buy me love. Everybody tells me so. Can't buy me love. No, 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 no. Whether you're a Beatles fan or not, what do you think? Could you buy someone's love? Could someone buy your love? In the words of the Beatles, could you be satisfied without the diamond ring, happy with things that money can't buy? There is a certain truth to the Beatles song, isn't there? Money can't buy love. And yet, I do wonder whether the, the Beatles' famous 1963 song would have resonated as well in other periods and places in history with the modern notion that you can't buy love have rung as true 30 years before the song's release in the middle of the Great Depression? Would American girls have replied to uh, protective suitors, you, you can't buy my love 100 years before 1963, in 1863, and in the middle of the American Civil War? Certainly, 150 years before the song was written in the UK, it would not have reverberated with such popularity. For in 1813 in England, Jane Austen was famously writing her wistful opening line of Pride and Prejudice. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. I.e., just 150 years ago, everyone knew that a woman potentially poor was desperately dependent on a rich husband. You see, when we already have enough money, we already have basic provision and protection, living in times of peace and plenty, it's easy to sing, isn't it? I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. But in most periods of history, particularly in times of great depression and great war, someone who was willing to give you everything they had might just be someone who did love you and was worth loving in return. Someone who was willing to give you everything they had might just be someone who did love you and was worth loving in return. Which is very important for us to grasp, because this morning we step further back in time, and not just a few decades, but actually a few millennium. For the setting of our historical account this morning, as it has been for the past four weeks, is Israel in the 11th century B.C., Indeed, at the start of this book, we are told these were the days when the judges ruled. And what was it like when the judges ruled? Well, if you skip back just one more page to the last word of the previous book, Judges, you can see that Judges 25, verse 11, these were the days when there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so this book is set in a period of absolute anarchy. And not only that, but Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 says these were the days when the judges ruled and when there was famine in the land. 
And so just before we explore this, this final chapter about a man who, who seemingly trashes those, those popular Beatles lyrics and, and goes out one day and seemingly just buys love, which sounds so offensive to our modern ears, just imagine with me just for a minute out of living back then. Picture for a minute uh, waking up on Sunday morning, not in Nashville in the days of Joe Biden, but in Palestine in the days of the judges. You wake up and you reach for your iPhone to check the time. There's no phone, not even a Nokia 3210 or a landline. There are no phones, there's no internet. And so you go to the cupboard to find some breakfast, except there is no pre-packaged cereal or bread. There's no fridge with any food in it at all. It's just a field of withered barley. Then you go to the kitchen to have a drink, except there is no kitchen, and there's no tap, and there's no running water. There's just a well in the distance, and, and as you look out towards that well, you, you notice a gang of locals. You begin to worry because they don't look friendly at all, and now, and now they move towards you. So you go back in to, to lock the door, but there is no lock. In fact, there's not even much of a door. And so you reach for something. You find a mere stick, and you wonder if you could fight them off, or if you could pay them off. You wonder if they'll like you or whether you're, you're part of the same family, the same nationality as them. For these are the ancient lawless days of the judges. Friends, in such a situation, in such a time, in such a place, what would be the worst thing to be? Well, 3,000 years ago in the Middle East, the very worst case scenario would be if you were female, poor, widowed, childless, and foreign. And that, that is the exact state of the two main characters in this book at the start of this chapter. For although there have been many romantic scenes and hopeful moments in this book, barley harvesting and, and glasses of wine in the spring in, in chapter 2 and, and whispered marriage proposals on summer nights in, in chapter 3 and even the hope of actually owning some land. Did you notice that in verse 3 this morning? But despite all that, the original perilous position of chapter 1 still hangs over Naomi and Ruth as the winter now draws in. Naomi may legally have some land from her ex-husband, but for whatever reason, she and Ruth can't use it. Perhaps her husband had unlawfully given it to a foreigner 10 years before they left. Perhaps it's too overgrown for Ruth to work. At most likely, someone has just simply taken it for the idea of a little old lady and a foreign girl taking it back by force was laughable. Accordingly here, as our story reaches its, its conclusion here, Ruth and Naomi are still desperate. Desperately poor, still gleaning in the fields for scraps, still desperately widowed, still grieving that the physical strength of a husband, still desperately childless, still those without a son or a grandson who could work the land or could, could take it back from violent people, and those who desperately looked like foreigners. Naomi, now with, without a home in the promised land, and Ruth, a literal refugee, a Moabite no less, an enemy of God's people. And as we saw last week, there is a sliver of hope just a sliver as winter draws in, for the man Boaz could possibly turn the fortunes of both women upside down. For as we've seen in this book so far, in contrast, Boaz is rich. He could redeem, he could buy back the land of Naomi's. 
And Boaz is strong. He has an army of men working his land. And Boaz is male. If he married Ruth, he could sire a son, a son who would not only protect and provide, but would ensure that Naomi and Ruth are not seen as defectors or outsiders. Or verse 5 and verse 10. A son would perpetuate Naomi's family name and ensure that Naomi was seen as one of God's people. Something which also would occur to Ruth through marriage because Boaz himself was an Israelite, as we know. A very worthy Israelite. Chapter 2, verse 1. And so for our two main characters, these poor, widowed, childless foreign ladies, Boaz, the, the Mr. Darcy of 11th century BC Israel, He's the big fish. The big hope of this final chapter is this Redeemer, and specifically, the business deal of the Redeemer. In fact, if you want some kind of heading for this first part of the story, either because you're you're someone who, who likes taking notes or because you're someone who is just worried about how long this sermon will go if you don't hear point one very soon, there you go. It's as good as point as any to stop. First half of our story, the business deal of the Redeemer. Now, as I've just said, there was much hope in chapter 3. But if you remember from last week, right at the end, Naomi and Ruth had hit a snag. For Israeli custom had it that if land was being sold, that the closest relative would have the first opportunity to, to redeem the land, that is to buy it back. And so to pick up our story this morning, Boaz is off. And, and in verse 1, let's get into the drama together. Boaz goes up to the gate of the city. Boaz essentially walked up to Capitol Hill, to the supreme court of his day, and there in his legal capital, he he looks for the man who could provide and protect Naomi and Ruth. And since God is totally in control of this whole story, the, the man suddenly appears at the gate. Behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And then the man is called over, verse 1, as as a friend. But more literally, in the Hebrew, Boaz shouts out something like, Hey you, whatever your name is, come and sit down. And so verse 2, this Mr. Whatever his name is, uh, sits down, and then Boaz gathers ten justices together. And in this makeshift courtroom in verse 3, Boaz explains to Mr. Whatever his name is that, that name is selling some land and that he has the chance to redeem it. He is first in line. He has an opportunity to, to kind of do his family duty and to publicly reinstate Naomi as, as a legitimate Israelite, someone who has a literal place in God's promised land. And given all of our, all our Disney World expectations, we, we just expect this, this man to let Boaz do it. But at the end of verse 4, he shockingly replies, did you notice there, I will redeem it. And the romantic candles of the, of the last three chapters are, are seemingly just snuffed out with four words from a man with no name. We are to picture Mr. Whatever His Name Is doing a quick business calculation in his head and then, and then shrugging his shoulders and, and basically saying, sure, it's, it's just about worth doing. I guess I'll have to provide for, for the old woman, but in a few years she'll bite the dust and then I'll have some more land and okay, it's a, it's, a, it's a done deal. I'll swing by with my boys next week, get the wire transfer set up, and get our land back. But Boaz is not yet done yet. In verse 5, Mr. Whatever-His-Name-Is is then read the small print 
with Naomi's land comes a young woman. Verse 5, you are also obliged to protect and to provide for Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. And instantly, the business deal is off. It's a terrible deal. We ought to imagine Mr. Whatever his name is kind of throwing his pen into the air so that his signature cannot touch any of the legal papers. And why? Why is this such a bad deal? Well, he tells us in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Can you see? For this shrewd worldly businessman, Ruth the young Moabite is not a beneficial add-on, but a massive cost incurred. For here he discovers that that there is not just Naomi to provide and to protect, but another woman to feed and defend. Indeed, the business wheels kind of turn faster in his brain. Hang on, he thinks. If I marry this young woman, then I might also have to raise a child with her, maybe more children. And then it's going to be at least three mouths to feed. And then if we have a son, I'm going to have to divide my fields with him. And then my other sons are going to get mad. And worst of all, you say that she is a Filthy Moabite? No way. No way is my pedigree, my pure Israeli ancestry line, going to be messed up with the insertion of a Moabite woman in my family tree. You're a better man than me, Boaz. The land is all yours. Well, Boaz is a better man. For in verse 7, Boaz literally steps into the shoes of the Redeemer. Indeed, with everybody watching as as legal witnesses and in line with the customs of the day, Mr. Whatever-His-Name-Is takes off his sandals and, and Boaz steps into the shoes of family duty. He promises to step into the breach. He will pay the price. Friends, what do we see here as New Testament believers? What are we to take away from this courtroom scene? Well, I've said, as I've said throughout this series, we must stand back And we must remember that this love story in the Bible points us to the ultimate love story in the Bible. The shadow is Boaz. The substance is Christ. The redeemer of the penniless Ruth and Naomi here is a picture of the redeemer of the penniless you and I. For morally, you and I are penniless, aren't we? We see that. We know that. Spiritually, You and I are weak. We feel that. And so in our most honest moments, you and I know that we deserve no title deeds to God's land. Indeed, to stand before God in heaven as his people, you and I desperately need some kind of redemption from all our unrighteousness, some kind of marriage into a holy family. Accordingly, the first thing which we must note here, as highlighted between The contrast between Mr. Whatever-His-Name-Is and Boaz is that that necessary redemption is costly. Indeed, underneath the first narrative heading of the business deal of the Redeemer, we note the man who empties. The man who empties, empties himself. For in this chapter, the man Boaz empties himself, doesn't he? He empties his bank account of gold and silver to buy the land. He empties his savings of of silver to to provide for Naomi. He empties his, his lineage, his reputation in Israel to marry Ruth the Moabite. The price of their redemption was too costly for most. 
far too costly for worldly men, like Mr. whatever his name was, but not too costly for the kind and the merciful Boaz. And wonderfully, it was not too costly for Christ. Which is staggering, isn't it? For the costly price of Ruth and Naomi's reputation was nothing compared to the cost of our redemption. For whilst the man Boaz was required to to empty his bank account, the man Jesus Christ was required to empty his very blood. For as we read earlier in 1 Peter 1, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that, that's, why, that's why Christians make such a big deal of the cross. That's why we talk about it every week. That's why we sing songs about it every week. That's why crosses are often painted on, on church buildings, sometimes even on Christian bodies. Christians make a big deal of the cross because the cross is where the big business deal was made. For the cross is where Christians were redeemed, where our value where our valley before God was reset. Because when you redeem something, that the valley of the thing is, is reallocated. When you redeem a gift card you, that you get for your birthday, you get something that you think is of equivalent value. You go into the shop and you may redeem it to get a cricket set or a baseball set or a, or a sewing set or a gardening set. But whatever you decide to redeem with that gift card, the, the, the card and the thing now purchased have equivalent value. Uh, accordingly, in the same way that in that courtroom, Naomi's value could now be derived by looking at all of Boaz's silver and gold exchanged for that land. And Ruth's value could now be derived at looking at, at Boaz's faultless family tree exchanged for marriage to a Moabite. At the cross, our valley may be derived by looking at the very blood of God's Son. For at the cross, we were redeemed. Redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Friends, some of you here this morning may consider yourselves worthless believers. Some of you here, I know, think you are Christians without any value at all. You have forever cheapened yourself by sins constantly committed, by decisions rashly made, by memories unable to be erased. But friends, if you are a Christian, if you have repented, if you have trusted in Christ, your value in Christ's eyes does not oscillate with your brilliance. Your value has already been set by his blood. You see, it's not only that, that our death was, was forever paid at the cross, but that our life was forever revalued at the cross. Indeed, my friend, Christ saw you in all your desperation, your desperation past and present and future, as Boaz saw Ruth and Naomi in all their desperation, and Christ emptied himself willingly. Accordingly, friend, what else may we deduce from this deal? Well, friends, again, if we're Christians, we may infer that Christ loves us. Yes, Boaz, like Christ, was innately kind uh, to the poor. Uh, Yes, Boaz, like Christ, was innately merciful to the widow, yet it was for the sake of love that Boaz emptied himself. 
For Boaz evidently, as we've seen time and time again, evidently adored Ruth. And Christian, Christ adores you. You know, sometimes in a right desire not to be flippant, sometimes in a right desire not to sound proud, sometimes in in a right desire not to sound tacky or frivolous, we, we sometimes refrain from those simple words, Jesus loves me. But as we see what he's done for Ruth and Naomi here, and the passionate feelings that the Boaz must have had, may we not conclude the same about Christ and his love for us? Member of Edgefield Church, Christ does not adore you because he paid the price for you. Christ paid the price for you because he adores you. Now, I don't know why he chose to adore you any more than I know why he chose to adore me. Indeed, the more I get to know you and the more you get to know me, the more surprised we may be by his choice. And yet he loves us both, for he has already paid the price. The man emptied himself for us. But what is the result? What is the result for the man? Well, secondly, from the first part of our narrative, we note here that the the man who empties gains glory from God. The man who empties gains glory from God. You can just imagine the, the gasp from the pretentious when Boaz says, I will redeem Ruth and Naomi. You can just imagine Mr. Whatever-His-Name is rolling his eyes and, and, and walking away from the courtroom scene. But seeing what Boaz has done and the cost he pays, all the people at the gate, verse 11, shout, don't they? May the Lord make the women, may the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be known, renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez. Can you see here that the people, the people at the gate pray? They pray that Boaz's children by Ruth may become renowned, that Boaz might become famous in God's land, that, that Boaz might gain glory from God. And what happens in verse 18? Well, Boaz does produce a son in the kingly line of Judah. And so his house becomes like the house of Perez. For verse 21, Boaz fathered Obed. And moreover, who then is Obed's famous grandson? Last verse in this whole book. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. Through Boaz's act of redemption, all of Israel is redeemed from the days of the judges. What glory Boaz receives through this costly act. He empties his blue blood and marries Moabite Ruth, and yet his blood shall become even bluer. For Boaz's great-grandson is King David, and David's great-great-grandson to come is King Jesus. And so Boaz's glorious name lives on. It lives on and on, and not just into into the Old Testament, but into the New. Boaz is mentioned on the very first page of the New Testament in the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. Boaz the man who emptied gains glory from God. Whilst in purposeful contrast, that the legacy of Mr. Whatever-His-Name is is deliberately omitted from God's Word. As one commentator points out, it remains an instructive fact that he who was so anxious for the preservation of his own inheritance is now not even known by name. 
Friends, this is how our, our, our creator always operates. A selfish desire to, to avoid costly sacrifice and gain glory in the here and now leads to a mission from the book of life. But emptying yourself now gives way to a greater future glory soon. And again, in the shadow of Boaz, we see the substance of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, we studied it not too long ago. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, as a result of costly redemption, Philippians 2 continues, therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, that is the pattern of Scripture from beginning to end. The one who empties himself for others here gains glory from God in the future. And so, my friends, if it is true of Christ, ultimately, and, and his ultimate redemption of us, should this not mark us, too, as those who follow in his footsteps? Should we not be marked by a desire to empty ourselves for the sake of others, suffering to bring about their redemption through the proclamation of Jesus, through the proclamation of redemption, that we may gain glory not seen in the here and now? In late 1934, an American lady named Betty Stamm gave birth to her first daughter. Yet Betty did not give birth in a, in, a, in a great hospital in America. Rather, she gave birth in rural China because Betty was a missionary. Betty's daughter was an unbelievable joy to her, but very sadly, Betty never got to her first Mother's Day. For just three months after giving birth, Betty and her husband John were captured by Chinese communists. And after being captured, they were then sadly executed outside of the city for preaching about that redemption of Christ. Amazingly, Betty's baby was found safe a few hours later, hidden in a sleeping bag with some diapers and two $5 bills. But her mother was with Christ. Because her mother had emptied herself for the sake of others' redemption. Emptied her American identity, become Chinese. Emptied her riches for the sake of others being redeemed. Emptied even her motherhood for the sake of greater glory. Friends, we're not all called to empty ourselves like Betty. But we are to let the truth hit home that emptying ourselves now for the sake of others' redemption as Christians will bring a greater glory in the future. For some, it mean, may mean emptying our comfort, that we may proclaim redemption through Christ in a, in a spiritually depraved part of the world. For others, it may mean emptying dreams of motherhood, that we might proclaim redemption in singleness. For others, it may mean emptying fridges so that we can give more to the poor redeemed locally. For others, it may mean emptying our reputation so that redemption might be heard at our secular places at work. 
For some here, it may mean emptying our time so that we can support and encourage the redeemed in Christ, members of our church who are broken. For others, it may mean emptying our pockets so this building might keep proclaiming redemption through Christ for many decades to come. Friends, I'm not going to tell you what to do. All I ask is for you to reflect upon the results of redemption seen here in Boaz, whom we are speaking of 3,000 years on, and then ultimately in the glorious Christ. The man who empties gains glory from God. The man who empties gains glory from God. Yeah, just very briefly as we close here, I did want us to look at the five remaining verses not covered yet. And to look at this final chapter, not through the lens of the Redeemer, but rather through the lens of the redeemed. A section of this last chapter, which we might entitle, The Blessings Dealt to the Redeemed. The Blessings Dealt to the Redeemed. Let's pick up our story in verse 13. Please do look down with me. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Well, that being Mother's Day, uh, today, I spent some time yesterday going through some old uh, photographs of our children when they were babies. Uh, there were many pictures of Sarah and I smiling as we uh, first held our, our firstborn son in, in 2012. But one of the, 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 the photographs that really stood out to me was a picture of my mum, Sarah's mother-in-law, holding Benjamin shortly after we took him home. For her face is just a picture of, of just utter elation. Now, my mum is, is a pretty joyful person at most times. She's one of the most contented people I know. But this photograph was different. For there was a childlike giddiness as she held him. There was a satisfaction in her eyes that was unique. There was a, there was a sense of fullness in, in my mother's smile. For I know that she had prayed for a grandchild for many, many years. And likewise here, just before the credits roll in verse 18, as we learn of, of Boaz's glorious family line, the author's final shot in his compelling movie is a picture of a mother with a grandchild in her arms, smiling the biggest smile of all time. Well, in this final scene, we note not the man who emptied, but the mother who is full. The mother who is full. Now, the actual mother, Ruth, is undoubtedly filled with many blessings. For in the space of just a few verses, Ruth moves from a, from a poor, widowed, childless foreigner to a rich, married Israelite with child. But perhaps surprisingly, given the title of the book, that the mother who is zoomed in on here at the end is actually Naomi. For in verse 16, it is Naomi who takes the child, and then it is Naomi who lays the child on her lap, and when the women of the neighborhood all come around, they say, a son has been born to Naomi. I wonder why you think that is. Well, at this point, it's worth remembering chapter 1 and the last time these women came around 
Just turn with me for a second to chapter 1 and verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. When Naomi and Ruth came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women from the neighborhood said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. You see what the author What the author is trying to do, I think, is is to push the reader to reflect upon what being redeemed by God means. When Naomi turned back to the Lord, life was bitter, and she took out all her heartfelt emptiness upon the Lord. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. She spat like a snake. But as her story continues with every chapter, Did you notice that the Lord continues to give her blessing upon blessing upon blessing? At the end of chapter 1, Naomi is blessed through repentance. She returns, and she returns right at the start of the barley harvest. And then at the end of chapter 2, Naomi is blessed by godly kindness. An ephah of barley is then placed upon her lap at the end of chapter 2. And then at the end of chapter 3, Naomi is blessed by faith. Six whole measures of grain are placed upon her lap. For Boaz says, you must not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And now, at the end of it all, Naomi is blessed by redemption. She sits in her procured home in the promised land with verse 15, a restorer of life upon her knee. Naomi may have come back to the Lord empty, but God filled her with blessings beyond all measure. Accordingly, what are we to make of all this? As we who are Christians seeking to apply us to ourselves, does this mean that if we turn back to the Lord that we are, we are promised fullness in this life and a, and a similar happily ever after moment? Well, no. For the setting of our chapter 4 comes not in this life. Let me say that again. The setting of our chapter 4 comes not in this life. Yes, we are redeemed at the cross 2,000 years ago, but that redemption is not verified by earthly courts, but by the heavenly courts to come. And as a result, our redemption will be seen in full on the day of our marriage to Christ, the ultimate heavenly bride, and on that day when we shall get a piece of the promised land. Accordingly, the happy blessing to come seen in the beautiful picture of a mother and a grandson here, are all ours, but not yet. Indeed, our days here, waiting for our chapter 4 to come, may be relatively bitter days. Days without the blessings of earthly land. Days without the blessings of much earthly food. Days without the blessings of earthly marriage. Days without, without earthly motherhood itself. Friends, I know that for some of you, this Mother's Day is painful. Let me say that I've honestly been praying for you this morning. But if you have been redeemed by Christ, if you have been redeemed, then friend, that is not the end of your story. You may weep bitterly now and understandably this day, but the Lord will bless you. Indeed, as we have seen, he will bless you even more in the heavens. Glory and glorious blessing await Naomi bouncing that child on her knee and smiling will be nothing compared to your smiles. As one who is redeemed by the blood of Christ, all manner of blessings await. You shall be pictured 
like the mother who is full. The mother who is full. But as a result of that happy certainty, what attitude should embody the redeemed in the here and now? Would Naomi have spouted her her bitter tirade in chapter 1 if she had known how how chapter 4 had ended? May we, who may not receive all the blessings we want now, rage at our sovereign God and and paint, paint him as a miser? May we go around with gritted teeth saying, chapter 1, verse 21, why call me pleasant, call me bitter, for the Lord has worked everything against me. The Lord has hatefully brought calamity upon me. The answer, of course, is no. So what should we be known by? What should we be known for? Well, in verse 17, the women of the neighborhood seem to know. For what do they do after seeing the the fully blessed Naomi, squeezing her her baby boy tightly with with tears of joy running down her face. Well, verse 17, they actually name her boy. They had to listen to Naomi rename herself in chapter 1, and so they get to name her grandson in chapter 4. And what do they call him in, in this book all about the importance of names? They call him Obed, which means worshiping. Obed's name is a gentle reminder from her friends of what the redeemed must now do. The full must worship the fountain of every blessing. The full must praise God who who satisfies eternally. For the mother who is full gives glory to God. That the mother who is full gives glory to God. Friends, whoever you are on this mothering Sunday, If you have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, brought out of poverty through his riches, you are to give glory to God. You are to worship him with your remaining days, whether the material blessings are many or whether they are few. Worshiping him by the way in which you live your life tomorrow and by how you praise him in just a minute. But before we sing... Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, what what glorious images you paint in this wonderful book. Father, we thank you so much for it. Father, what a delight to reflect upon all that is ours to come because of the redemption found in your Son. Father, again, we, we praise you for your Son this day. He who redeemed us from all our poverty. He who brought us back to you. He who has given us a place in heaven. Who has revalued us and loved us. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to live these fleeting days rightly. We pray that we would trust Christ's cross. We pray that we would wait for Christ's coming. And in the meantime, we pray that we might praise you as we should as the giver of all good things now and forever, for your glory. Amen.